past few days, when I've been at that window upstairs, I've thought a bit of the shining city upon a hill. The phrase comes from John Winthrop, who wrote it to describe the America he imagined. What he imagined was important because he was an early pilgrim, an early freedom man. He journeyed here on what today we'd call a little wooden boat. And like the other pilgrims, he was looking for a home that would be free. I've spoken of the shining city all my political life, but I don't know if I ever quite communicated what I saw when I said it. But in my mind, it was a tall, proud city built on rocks stronger than oceans, windswept, God-blessed, and teeming with people of all kinds living in harmony and peace. A city with pre-ports that hummed with commerce and creativity. And if there had to be city walls, the walls had doors, and the doors were open to anyone with the will and the heart to get here. That's how I saw it and see it still. Morning glory, America. That is the great Ronald Reagan. This is the Hillsdale Dialogue on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Once a week, we go big. We go back sometimes with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, and one of his colleagues this week, Dr. Brad Berzer, who is a professor of history and the Russell Amos Kirk Chair in American Studies at Hillsdale College. He's from Notre Dame in Indiana. We'll forgive him that. He's the co-founder of the Imaginative Conservative, and I did not know until I prepared for this show that he's the author of American Cicero, Charles Carroll of Carrollton. I need to read that because I've always admired Charles Carroll as the most influential Catholic of the framing. Uh, so good morning, Dr. Arn. Good morning, Dr. Berzer. Um, Dr. Arn, what did you think when you heard Ronald Reagan talking about City on a Hill again? Isn't that beautiful? Is it from his farewell address? Yes, I've looked out these windows all these eight years, yes. Yeah, it's just awesome. Uh, uh, you know, he, he had a way, didn't he? <laughs> uh, he did. And Dr. Berzer, you have a way. Uh, you have, you've really written quite extensively to Dr. Arn and I in preparation of this Hilldale Dialogue on John Winthrop. You know, I lived in Winthrop House for three years at Harvard, and I had no idea who John Winthrop was. Uh, so that's, that's down on me and on, on Harvard. Uh, quite a remarkable thing. What did you think when you heard Reagan talking about John Winthrop? Well, my soul failed. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and good morning to you both. Um, good morning. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's just just beautiful. I love the way that Reagan captures it. it. It captures so much of Reagan's optimism, so much of what I mean, what conservatism was and should be. I mean, he, he nailed it. It's just beautiful. And will be again. I just got done speaking with Mike Pompeo for half an hour. And Dr. Arn, this is not on topic. I just wonder what you think about him and his positioning in the Republican Party he was bringing a hammer to the Chinese Communist Olympics in 2022. He wants to shatter those, something I think Reagan uh, would approve of right now because they're in the midst of a genocide of the Uyghur people. Yeah, they've just crushed Hong Kong. It's the saddest thing. It's, uh, it's such a beautiful place, and, and it's just become another communist-controlled republic of a sort. Yeah, Pompeo is an important guy, and... You know, his friend Tom Cotton is an important guy, and Josh Hawley is an important guy. And I'm going to offend somebody by stopping Mike Pence. Those guys are all positioned. And I was I was saying to myself, because it is a good idea to look around for something optimistic, because there's a lot of bad stuff right now. Um, uh, if you just think of the field that might be put together right after the primaries are over is when the presidential race starts, that's strong. 
there's a lot of people who figured out a lot of things, and the issues that they're dwelling on are very different than the race, the way the race started in 2016. You're right. Uh, and we're going to be talking about the Chinese Communist Party a lot. But a lot of it has got to proceed from an understanding of who we are as a people, and that's where John Winthrop comes in. And that's where I want to go. Dr. Berzer, first of all, thanks for writing about Charles Carroll. I didn't know that book was out there. Uh, why were you drawn to Charles Carroll, and who is he for the benefit? It's a bonus round in this week's Hillsdale Dialogue. Oh, the bonus round. Well, <laughs> yeah, I actually, ISI was doing, uh, ISI Books was doing a whole series on forgotten founders, and I happened to be at a conference uh, that was that was being sponsored uh, over in Grand Rapids, and I, I met the man who was was putting together that series, and he just asked me. He knew I was he knew I was Roman Catholic, and he came up and he said, "Brad, I know you like the founding, and I know you like Roman Catholicism. Uh, would you be interested in doing the Carol?" And the, yeah, that I just immediately said yes. That was uh, that was a, a really a, a dream come true to be able to do that, and I had a great time writing that book. And I have to read that now. I didn't know that anyone had ever done that. Did it? Did um, did ISI do a good job of telling people that there was a biography of, of Charles Carroll available? Yeah, they did, and they they still promoted it. In fact, um, I, I'm still still getting checks for that one. That was uh, yeah, that that's done well, and uh, they did a very nice job of promoting that. They ended up only publishing, I think, four maybe out of the series that they were. I thought was going to be much bigger. Uh, of the Forgotten Founders. But yeah, that was one of them, and, and they've treated that book very well. Thanks for the having me. Archbishop Chaput listens to every show every morning in Philadelphia. I'm sure he and I are going to talk about Charles Carroll, America's first Catholic. That's what I call him. And my friends at John Carroll get mad at me. That's a fine little school in, Car in, in Cleveland. Uh, Larry Arn, I don't know. Do you ever play John Carroll in sports? Uh, no. Uh, Jesuits would beat you. You got to be careful. The Jesuits would beat you. They, they, you just got to be careful. They'll, they'll beat you. No, no Jesuits no, would ever take Larry. No way. I, I, I am very fond of you Catholics, you and Brad. You guys are having a love fest right now. But I will tell you that I would be mortally ashamed if we got beat by John Carroll. <laughs> They're very good. Hey, I got This is off subject. Now Hillsdale is home to one of the two finest churches on a campus in America. I think. Thomas Aquinas College has a beautiful chapel. Not surprisingly, it's designed by the same person who designed yours. But Brad, can you go to Mass in there? I, I don't think it's been consecrated to allow Mass to be performed there, has it? No, it has. There's a, a side oh. that every Thursday there's Mass. Uh, yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, that, that chapel is just stunning, and I think it's one of Larry's many great accomplishments. <laughs> Only every Thursday? You don't have a priest who'll show up every day to do Mass at Hillsdale? We we have daily mass at our parish. Yes, we do. Well, I've worshipped at your parish. It's full of Hillsdale kids. I just think you ought to seize control of the president's office and turn it into a Catholic college. <laughs> you know, I, let me just let me just let, uh, issue a papal bull. Brad can go to Catholic mass there, but you cannot, you. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like Elizabethan England. All the Catholics could meet in a certain room and run over and seize control. Of the, and unfortunately, if it doesn't work, you'll all be hung. But that's okay. You, might, you can still make a push going. Let's talk about John Winthrop. First of all, Dr. Arndt, I've got the American Heritage Reader in front of me, which is the, um, the Hillsdale College Bible. Uh, and when did this start, and why does it keep getting bigger? Uh, the reader. Uh, gosh, Brad, that's got to be 25 years old now, I think, something like that. It, it's older. It's, I've been here 22, and yeah. it's older than I am. Yeah. Okay. 
so it's, so it's uh, and it's uh, we I, I think it's only been redone once, and that was not long after I came here, and I had right. some input into it, uh, and Brad did. Brad's a show pony, by the way. He's one of our most popular teachers. Well, let, let me ask the show pony then. Yeah. I don't know anything about John Winthrop until after I read the introduction in this. Why is he so little known? Well, that's, that's a great question, Hugh, and, and really he shouldn't have been. Uh, I'm certainly, when I took colonial history in college, the first thing we read was Edmund Morgan's The Puritan Dilemma, which is that, that little, they used to have that whole series of little brown biographies that were just fantastic. Uh, everything from Sitting Bull to Elizabeth Cady Stanton to Harry Truman, they were all in this series. And John Winthrop was that was in that series. So I actually, I got exposed to him pretty early. I mean, I was a, probably a, a junior in college when I first read that. So I, I think probably a bit of it is just luck of the draw, who you had as a professor and, and what courses you took. But well, I had Judas Klar. I had Judas Sklar, and I did an early American political writings from Judas Sklar. He was not in that curriculum, and she was a fine professor. I think there's an ideological reason. Do you agree with me? Do you, do you sense what it might be? Well, I mean, it certainly could be. I, I, I wouldn't fight that by any means. Uh, you know, he's, a, he's an interesting figure, and the fact that people like Ronald Reagan gravitated so much towards him, and of course not just Ronald Reagan, but people going all the way back to the 20s, uh, politicians especially, have been citing John Winthrop. So I think there maybe was a bit of a revival of him in the 20th century. But yeah, I could see that you would have a professor that might might eschew that. When we come back from break, I'm going to ask Dr. Arn why he thinks Judas Sklar didn't teach Winthrop, even though there's a house name for him on the grounds of Harvard. And we'll find out what it is that Winthrop wrote that affects us to this very day and ought to actually impact us more when we come back. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. All things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. Show ponies and presidents. That's what we're doing this week. Stay tuned, America. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. There's a lot of spin on the news out there. Where do you hear the truth? Right here. As soon as Hugh Hewitt returns, this is the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway on the Hugh Hewitt Show with Dr. Larry Arn, Dr. Brad Berzer of Hillsdale College, all things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu. All of our previous conversations, all 300 plus of them in the Hillsdale Dialogue, are collected at hugh4hillsdale.com, and the uh, podcasts of them are available as well at a Hillsdale website. Find that. Dr. Berzer, first a little background on John Winthrop before we go to the writings that are included in the American Heritage Reader at Hillsdale. Who is he? Why do we care? Yeah, thanks, Hugh, and thanks for everything you've done for Hillsdale, too. It's just fantastic. So John Winthrop, I mean, you look at his years, he was born in 1588 and he died in 1649, which means that he was living in one of the most interesting and tumultuous times in English history. You've got Queen Elizabeth, King James, King Charles, of course, the, the Puritan Civil War that happens uh, towards the end of his life. Winthrop himself grew up in a very kind of up 
upper middle class family with a home that was very welcoming, even to Catholics, uh, despite the fact that he was a, a very devout Puritan, a very devout Congregationalist. But he grew up in a very tolerant house, ended up going to Cambridge for a couple of years, didn't graduate there, uh, but did go for a couple of years and became one of these figures who, once there was a, a movement to come to America and to start colonizing America, he wasn't the very first person to recommend that. But once it was recommended to him, he became kind of the first great organizer that we can think of, of the people who, who come over and settle here. So we have four major groups that settle in America. We have uh, the Quakers who come to Pennsylvania, we have the Anglicans who go to Virginia, the Scotch-Irish who settle all over the place. But of course, for us um, and this discussion this morning, it's really the Puritans of New England that matter so much. And Winthrop was really at the center of that. And, and it's fascinating to read not only how he organized the journey coming over to America, but just the frontier conditions, which were, were horrible uh, for several years and the way that they had to survive in the wilderness and try and make things work with only very limited supplies and, and often very low morale. Uh, it was Winthrop who really pulled through that experiment, uh, ultimately resulting in about 21,000 people migrating uh, to live under John Winthrop's rule, that is to live in colonial New England. And that's when you think about those, those years, just 1629 to 1641, where you've got 21,000 people coming there. And that, that doesn't count the people who are going to the other colonies. That's just in New England. That's pretty stunning. And Winthrop really spent most of his career as governor. Uh, there were times, as we saw in the second document, where he's no longer governor, but a magistrate. But uh, he was governor more often than not of the whole Massachusetts Bay Colony. And I think, you know, by almost any standard, did, did uh, an astounding job. I think, you know, as Reagan said, he was a great freedom man. And I think there was truly something about that in the way that we look at Winthrop's rule. Uh, he had to balance a lot of things, but I think overall he was an extremely effective statesman. When you, when you sent Larry and I the memo uh, to help us uh, get ready for this, I read a line, gave me a little chill. I want people to read it because I've never heard it described this way. The Puritans were one of the four great free folk migrations of the colonial period, along with the Anglicans to Virginia and the Chesapeake, the Quakers to Pennsylvania and Delaware, and the Scots-Irish to various parts of the English colonies. The four great free folk. I've never heard it put that way, Dr. Berzer, before. Is that a, a common technical term? You know, I take that. Um, that's from a, a book that I really like, and I, I cited that in that memo that I sent to you and Larry. It, it's a book called Albion Seed by David Hackett Fisher, and he, he it's the subtitle is The Four British Folkways in America, and he describes them as these kind of cultural ways of understanding. And, and the, the reason it's the four free is because obviously it doesn't include those who are being brought from Africa. So the Africans would be the fifth migration, but of course they're, they're coming against their own will. They're so, enslaved. Yeah, but, Dr. Arn, have you ever heard, have you, do you use that team, the four great free folk? Well, I know Brad for a long time, so of course. <laughs> <laughs> so he's an evangelist. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have not read Albion Seed, so now I have to read Charles Carroll and Albion Seed. And when we come back, we'll talk about the two readings that are in the American Heritage Reader. By the way, it's available at hillsdale.edu. You have to pay for it, but there's a lot that's free at hillsdale.edu, including courses on the American founding, which you ought to read. 
I don't know if Dr. Berger's course is up there, but maybe Larry Arnold will figure it out that he ought to, before the coup happens and he's out, out back in the, in the little hut that we're going to put him in, he ought to get Dr. Berger up at hilldale.edu. Stay tuned, America. You're in the middle of a non-stop action-packed information blitz. The Hugh Hewitt Show is coming right back. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. We're talking about John Winthrop, one of the great early figures of American history. And he arrived in this country in the spring of 1630. I believe that's correct. And it, one of his legacies is a tract called A Model of Christian Charity, which is in the Hillsdale American Heritage Reader. And um, I'm joined by Dr. Larry on president of Hillsdale College, and Brad Berzer, who is a doctor of, uh, Professor Berzer teaches early American founding and philosophy, but he's agreed to take this on. I read A Model of Christian Charity for the first time this week, uh, Dr. Berzer, and I'm kind of astonished I've never seen it before, and it comes in two parts. It's not unlike a legal brief. A statement of facts and then an mm -hmm. argument from facts. Would you describe a model of Christian charity for us? Yeah, well, I think you just did perfectly. Um, it is this, this fascinating sermon that begins with uh, a couple of definitions, a couple of arguments. Then we have this catechesis right in the middle of it, yeah, question and answer. Uh, what's the question? What's the answer? And then after that, we get the, the culmination of all of it, the legal definitions along with the catechesis. And we have this really dramatic moment at the end where Winthrop is citing Jesus' Sermon on the Mount from Matthew and begins to talk about how their community has to be a community that will be, as, as Reagan said at the beginning of our, our session, began, uh, it will be a city upon a hill upon uh, of which all eyes of the world will be upon. And, you know, talk about a burden. I, I think sometimes, and I, I know sometimes in, in American textbooks, this is seen as kind of arrogant, as if, you know, well, look at this, the city upon a hill, America thinks it's so great. In another way, it can be seen as something that's unbelievably humbling. Right? This is, my gosh, we're the city on a hill. If we mess this up, we mess it up for everybody. If we get this wrong, we get it wrong for everybody. So in a sense, it's not arrogant in the least. It's actually quite the opposite. And I think it fits with Winthrop, who in this kind of public sermon is really talking about the nature of Christ and the nature of humility and what sacrifice means. So there's a lot to it. There's a lot of depth especially as we're thinking about how the Christian faith might inform our politics. There, there's a lot of depth there. So, Dr. Arndt, if, if we were to think about someone of parallel stature in the United States today, Winthrop is a significant man in England. I mean, he's a big guy, and he's getting on a boat, and he's not coming back, and he's going to what is at that point a primitive existence. I actually don't know that we could, and he's not a young man when he does this, right? He's, what, 48 years old when he gets on a boat and he's going to to the frontier. It's actually extraordinary. Yeah. It also shows, to see, these the, the New England colonies are 20 years old when he does this. And that means, by the way, there was a magic about them. You know, what, what a thing, right? What a, a vast land. It would be, after Winthrop, it would be 
until Lewis and Clark, 1807, I think, that they knew how big the continent was, right? But they knew it was big, and they it was open, and were building a whole new world there. And then uh, Winthrop is a very well-born man. Uh, he's had every advantage all his life. He's smart as a whip. He's got you know all the edu- all the education that was available. And then he picks up and goes in middle age, and that's because isn't this important? And of course that 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 uh, statement that we're reading from that he made on the ship, Arabella was it? Uh, that's that's a personal statement too. That's why I'm going. Look at this, and uh, that's. So it's it's a it's a wonderful thing, and uh, you know I want to read. He he, you have to understand who you are before you know what you're doing, and he knows who we are, and he addresses these Puritans on this boat, and it's fairly late in the immigration of the twenty one thousand Puritans. We are a company professing ourselves fellow members of Christ, in which respect only, though we are absent from each other many miles, and had our employments as far distant, yet we ought to account ourselves. And uh, we ought to account ourselves knit together by his this bound of love and live in this exercise of it. If we are to comfort, take comfort in our being in Christ, we are a company professing ourselves fellow members of Christ. So he's actually talking to all these people on the boat, and he's saying we're in this. We're we're stuck with each other. I'm struck by how personal this is, uh, Brad. Yeah, and I, I think that's a part of New England congregationalism. Right? The congregation is everything. Uh, in, in every way, it's everything. It is the center of their world. The family becomes the kind of key social unit, but beyond the family, which was a way to get people into the church, basically, beyond that, you have the congregation, which is the church. And every community is essentially equal to every congregation. Every congregation is equal to every community. So once you had a congregation that became too big, you had to start a new one. And they were always of a certain size. And that I mean, these people knew each other. And they, they were, as John Winthrop says, you know, taking again from Scripture, we are one body. Uh, we are many men who become one body. And that, I think, is one of the most interesting things about the New England experiment. You don't have that in any other uh, settlement in America. Even the Quakers, who meet as friends, do so really as a combination of individuals. But in New England, that individuality becomes so much an essential part of the whole body that they really are as if parts of the body to the body as a whole. Winthrop writes, or speaks on the ship, we must not content ourselves with usual ordinary means who... Whatsoever we did or ought to have done when we lived in England, the same we must do, and more also where we go. We must bear one another's burdens. We must not look only on our own things, but also on the things of our brethren. Neither must we think that the Lord will bear with such failings at our hands as he does from those among whom we have lived. Uh, We had a much higher standard. Larry, it sounds like you're talking to the freshmen who are showing up at Hillsdale. That's right. And it's, it's the same kind of thing. If you just think, you know, to go go back to this idea of compact, it's very powerful because, on the one hand, it subordinates the individual to the community, and yet on the other, the community is made up of the willing individuals, and that's a there's a kind of a constitutional protection in that to keep it from becoming a police state, and I, I you know, it's. The, these doctrines are very strong, and they were deeply held, 
and they called forth from the people who held them just prodigies of achievement. Prodigies of achievement and great exemplars of learning. I also noted in this, uh, Professor Berzer, that he is so schooled in Scripture. He just tosses this off, right? I'm sure he's right. done his homework, but it's, it is heavily annotated, and it all depends on Micah chapter 6. I mean, it all comes back to uh, the only way to avoid shipwreck and to provide for our posterity is to follow the counsel of Micah. To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God, we must delight in each other's uh, company, make others' conditions our own, rejoice together, mourn together, labor and suffer together, always having before our eyes our commission and community in the work. I am actually astonished that this is not more widely known, because it is, it's a communitarianism which has sort of vanished from America. Yeah, you know, it is beautiful, and that, that text from Micah is all over the colonial period. By the time we get to the American Revolution, the favorite passage of Americans, in, in which they don't even explain the passage, sometimes they'll just say Micah 4-4, which everybody knows, is that every man shall sit under his own vine and fig tree unafraid. Uh, it's one of the most important definitions of liberty in the colonial and then especially in the American Revolutionary period. So, yeah, uh, pretty amazing prophet, of course, from a Christian standpoint, from a Jewish standpoint, but from a historical standpoint, what a figure. Uh, just amazing. So what kind of government do they establish, Dr. Arn? I mean, what is the Puritan uh, a means of governing themselves? Well, that uh, in the beginning, it changed quite a lot over time because the original thing they, dis they discovered didn't really work. Uh, they, they established a community of religious conformity. That means you're a member of the church, you go. If you don't, somebody will come talk to you. Um, and your, your manners are observed from your neighbors. And that that's, might sound despotic to us today, but remember, you, you know, you said this kind of community we don't have. Well, we're busy building it right now. Right. Just look at the doctrines, at the struggle sessions that, you know, universities and the Fortune 500 and all the media and tech companies put their employees through, right? It's, 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 it's much more intrusive than anything going on in New England, but it's not like what went on in New England in its basis. In New England, you, nobody was confused that you could go to heaven because somebody else told you to or made you do right. In other words, it was to uh, elicit and sustain consent in all its steps. And, you know, it, it, if you just look at what happened through the 150 years before the American Revolution, it loosened significantly. But those points didn't disappear at all. Uh, the, the, but this is the starting point for the 150-year evolution. I know some people look at the Mayflower Compact, but I actually think if you want to understand the American founding... You have to go through those 150 years with an eye on the Old and New Testaments. And this is a, I mean, this is so explicitly biblical and a higher standard calling that it's uh, quite bracing. Dr. Berzer, can you get to the founding without Winthrop? Oh, I think it'd be very difficult. I mean, this this really is the beginning of the New England way and an understanding, you know, which, which we're going to see. I mean, I, I think... Um, you know, Dr. Arndt's absolutely right about looking at the way that the government works, moving from this deeply, almost uh, oppressive at times, religious organization to becoming something much more tolerant. Um, and, and that's both, I, mean, I think, both good and bad in the way that toleration plays out, because 
there's also within that New England way, then, as Dr. Arnn said, this kind of oppressiveness in terms of trying to understand what an ideology is. But no, I mean, I think in the best sense, John Winthrop is certainly one of the American founders in the way that he is laying this out, breaking the wilderness, giving an understanding of community. But also, I think that he personally, as a statesman, does a really good job of trying to balance what could be a more oppressive kind of conformist society with a much more individual society that's based on on conscience. When we come back, the last segment of this week's Hillsdale Dialogue, we're going to talk about John Winthrop in the dock, because though he was a great figure in the first governor and uh, governor, 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 he ends up in the dock. And we'll talk about why in the next segment. This is the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. This Hillsdale Dialogue with Dr. Larry Arn and Professor Brad Berzer has been unique. It's about John Winthrop, a forgotten American. They can make a movie about this guy. But what I really love about it is he's the governor of everything forever. And then Brad Berzer, he ends up in the dock. What happened to John Winthrop and why does he have to make a speech to the general court, which is included in the Hillsdale Dialogue American Reader? Yeah, you know, that speech is a great speech, of course, dealing with the nature of law. But uh, I, I have to admit to you, and I'm a little embarrassed about this, when I knew that you and Larry were going to ask me to do this, I, I did as much research as I could on this incident. And in most histories of Puritanism, there is no listing of why he gives this speech. There's just a note that he gave the speech. And the best I can find, and I checked with my colleagues, the best I can find is that John Winthrop intervened in a militia dispute. Uh, there were a couple of different militias that were each vying for power within New England, and he got involved in that, and that was seen as being too intrusive by, uh, he wasn't governor at that point, but he was magistrate, as being too intrusive. And so he kind of famously stepped down and served as a defendant in his own courtroom and was able, through the speech, to get himself off. But and he, he does not object, by the way. He says, I, you are the right. court, and I am the defendant, and you're perfectly legit. I'm just going to have my say. What does he say to him, Brad? Well, he basically says that you know, we can't expect, oh my gosh, this goes back to the early Christian church, we can't expect every minister and every person to be perfect. We can only presume that they are moving by grace towards perfection. But we have to recognize that there will be failings among men because we are men and we are fallen. Uh, and, and he says, you know, but we have to understand that what we are trying to do here is to have a certain kind of liberty, and that liberty that we want is the liberty to do what is good and just and honest. In other words, we have the right to do what is right, not the right to do what is wrong. Uh, and that's, you know, Christ makes us free in that way. So it, it, it's an amazing, I mean, whatever, whatever the situation was, Winthrop turns this thing around and makes it a great learning moment. Well, he also includes in it a famous appeal to Ephesians and about how women are going to have rights, but they make a right to be, choose their husband. And this would not get him any yes. votes in, in 2021, right? In 2021, yeah. this would get him hanged. <laughs> but, Dr. Arn, did you read this and say, oh, here's a guy who's willing to defend himself in the dock? Oh, yeah. Well, he's a, a salty man, and that's right. He uh, See, one reason it's obscure about all this is that this is a statement of high principle, to justify a particular act. But there's a lot more about the high principle than there is the particular act in the speech. 
Well, if the state of Michigan comes for you, and they almost did, you should take this with you. Because yeah. you, can't, you can't reject their right to come for you. You just have to get acquitted and then read them the riot act. Well, I can reject their right to come for me. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but you'll be acquitted. That's what, that's yeah. what Winthrop is saying. He's, he's careful to point out he's been acquitted. He now wants listen, that in the record. Listen to the, the spirit of this thing that John Winthrop said. The point is the executive branch of no state has the power to regulate in detail the affairs of an entire population by itself, right? Yep. It's, po- it's possible that the pandemic is serious enough, which I do not believe and have not believed from the beginning, to justify this, not by the executive alone. The legislature has to be involved. And the, the governor contradicts herself six ways to Sunday because she began all this under a 1975 law that requires consultation with the legislature, and she did that. But the minute they turned her down for something, she immediately went to a 1946, I think it is, law, that, you know, it's passed after the Second World War. We do dumb things after big wars, apparently. And it gives her the power to just roll. And, and by the way, have you noticed New York State is taking back their power from Governor Cuomo? Yeah. They've well, had it, too. They're, it, they're, they're done with this. The, I, I hope and believe that there's a great groundswell against what has been a summer of despotic acts. And, the, and that, I use that word intentionally. It is not right when the rulers rule in their own interest. And, and that's the have, John Winthrop I mean, that's, that's right. why we're reading Winthrop. That's what it says. It's, uh, so, I mean, I think we should be emphatic about this. And, uh, and, you know, they're not used to that because... They've got their codes in place, and you're not responsible if you don't wear your mask and all that stuff. And, it, you know, it probably is a good idea to wear, wear a mask. But outside, when you're not close to anybody, there's just no reason to believe that that, that has an effect on anything. It's a virtue signal. And so they've got large parts of the population engaged in that virtue signaling. But every time I talk to somebody... Uh, I, they, 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 they roll their eyes, you know, because who wants to wear a mask for a year and, you know, probably another year? And, and, but forget the mask for a minute. You're not allowed to have customers, right? And yet your bills go on. They are depriving you of your business, which you have built, and therefore your employees of their jobs. And John Winthrop would not approve. And we know that from his speech. Brad Berzer, talk to you next week as we talk about William Penn. Larry Arn, talk to you always. Thank you, Dr. Arn. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This and every other Hillsdale Dialogue can be found at hillsdale.edu or Hugh for Hillsdale. Thank you, Dwayne. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Ben and Harley. I'll talk to you on Monday on the next Hugh Hewitt Show. absolutely positively need the truth this is where you turn this is the hugh hewitt show